Hello and welcome to the Airways Podcast, Season 2, Episode 2. I'm your host, Helen Villamazar, Digital Editor at Airways, joined tonight by the aviation analyst Rohan Anand and Vinay Baskara. How are you guys doing tonight? Been a very pleasant evening. I've enjoyed having some time after work to go hang out by the lake with my dog. And then now I'm here recording this podcast. What about you, Vinay? Yeah, well, I think everyone who follows me on Twitter knows that I'm an inveterate United Airlines stan for the most part. But uh, on my return journey from Atlanta last night, Atlanta to Houston and then home to DFW, ran into a bit of a snafu. First, my Atlanta leg was de- delayed by about three hours which caused me to switch on to the last Houston-Dallas leg of the night. Um, that was originally scheduled for 9.48 p.m. I gave up on it when it got to 12.20 a.m. in terms of delays and spent the night at the Houston Airport Marriott. Well, and I just got home close to 24 hours after I should have been. So United Airlines is my favorite, but they're not perfect. <laughs> Sounds like the, the the usual Stockholm syndrome uh, <laughs> that you've had in the past. When it comes that to sounds like a joke from someone who hasn't spent enough time trying to piece through Delta and Americans apps. Yeah, no, the United app is by far the superior app uh, for a lot of things. And so I think for those reasons, it would be a very challenging experience to be stranded in Houston when you could have flown nonstop from Dallas to Atlanta on the other two airlines. Um, but bad notwithstanding, uh, yeah, sorry for your experience. Yeah, in hindsight, I probably could have come home on one of like six Delta flights or three American flights, and I would have been fine. Or Southwest. Or no, Spirit. never, never, never Southwest. No, no, no. Southwest. I have too much, what's the right word here? Um, self-love to ever let myself fly. <laughs> L-U-V, to be precise. <laughs> All right, on that note. Well, interesting, because we are going to talk about United and Delta today. I think we can uh, begin with today's topics. Uh, the first one is Delta Airlines reported an all-time record for operating revenues and profits uh, in the second quarter of 2023. Then we'll discuss United Airlines announcing a major Trans-Pacific expansion for the IATA Northern Winter of 2023-2024. And finally, we'll talk about Brazil's largest low-cost carrier, uh, Azul, which is planning to phase out its uh, fleet of Airbus A350s after less than one year of operations. I do appreciate that you called two A350s operated by Azul a fleet. That's that's a lot of respect shown yeah. to Azul's operating quote-unquote fleet of A350s. Well, they're they're expecting more, right? Yeah, we'll we'll, we'll definitely get into the whole sordid saga of Azul and its A350s. Get up to speed on the commercial aviation industry with the top stories of the week by subscribing for free to the Airways NOTAM newsletter. You won't have to worry about missing a thing. Every new edition of the Airways NOTAM goes directly to your inbox. Go to airwaysmagazine.substack.com slash subscribe. That's airwaysmagazine.substack.com slash subscribe. 
Okay, so Delta uh, reported an all-time record for operating revenues and profits uh, for Q2 of 2023. It reported uh, $14.6 billion in revenue for the June quarter, 19% higher than same period in 2022, and 17% higher than in Q2 2019. It also reported all-time record operating profits of $2.5 billion, which is uh, Translates to 17.1 operating margin. So the airline cited uh, a 34% drop in fuel costs relative to 2022 and a 61% jump in international passenger revenue, led by Southern Europe and Latin America. Yeah, it definitely helps when the fuel environment is much more favorable to a year ago. And I think broadly speaking, too, we're still in a place where the results that are being posted by the airlines are now starting to set the new data points for what the next years will look like, as well as the data points for what a possible recession might look like. We can't really rely on 2021 or 2020 data. 2022 was obviously one of the very first years in recovery. And again, the fuel environment uh, has been uh, definitely by being down by just one price for one dollar per barrel per barrel that that's going to have an impact and then 2019 data is not really relevant because the travel mixes have changed so in that regard this is kind of the initial ink that's being put down for the next few years and so i think that these results are very impressive i definitely think that it reflects good management on delta's part uh it's also very you know indicative that the recession fears that are there uh are probably uh, still kind of overhyped if people are even saying that word. Uh, but Nibine, I, I don't know. Do you agree, disagree with me on that? Well, first, I just want to note that the esteemed forecaster, <clears throat> the stripper index, is telling us that we're actually in an economic recovery. And so before everyone loses their mind, the idea of the stripper index is this inside joke on Twitter where... Basically, in the early part of last year, when we had those two consecutive quarters of really low negative growth that was technically a recession, um, there was a stripper. I can't remember her name or handle, which hopefully speaks well of me. But she basically <laughs> said, hey, my normal finance and consulting and corporate clients aren't coming in like normal. I think a recession's in coming. So that was last year. She, I, it's, I suppose, correctly predicted that a recession was coming. Now she's back on Twitter with the opposite statement. Hey, some of my clients are coming coming back into the club. So I would say just based on, you know, a 100% track record, I'm going to have to agree with your take and her, and her take that a recession isn't coming. I think the fuel story is a really interesting one just because arguably that made 2022 look worse than the underlying fundamentals just because there was this really interesting, I mean, not interesting, but tragic external catalyst in the form of the Russian invasion of Ukraine. And it's taken a long time for fuel prices to recover from that distortion. But yeah, I mean, I think I agree with your overall take. Delta is a really well-managed airline. They have done a great job of recovering revenue. They didn't make some of the mistakes that American did in terms of dropping off too much capacity. I think there's a lot of stuff when you dig a little bit further in. There's definitely interesting strategy questions to dig into. But at, at a high level, I, I don't disagree with you. I think that it's a really good quarter for from Delta. And if you think back to what the pre-pandemic, you know, 2012 to 2019, 
you'd just go quarter after quarter and Delta would be like, here's some record profits. Oh, we're buying an oil refinery, but here's some more record profits. And here's some more record profits. And I think it was really, it's really interesting that the pandemic, I think, shifted investor perception of airlines in part because there was this obviously enormous tail risk that emerged. But I think that I had been arguing before the pandemic and that I actually kind of still believe in the post-pandemic era is that U.S. airlines aren't the bad investment that they once were, right? They're, they're not tech companies. They're not, you know, high growth pharmaceuticals or whatever, but they are a better investment than they have been for most of the history of the U.S. airline industry. And if you look at the trajectory of 2012 to 2023, strip out 2020 and 2021 and the early part of 22 because of the pandemic effects, you see a, just a consistent upwards trend at most of the carriers, American and its debt load may be accepted from a finance perspective. Yeah. It's funny to me as well that you are correct in that the <laughs> analyses of results from the 2012 through 2019 period, you and I had dissected many of these quarters in our previous episodes of the podcast and just kind of how Wall Street reactions were almost a theme in and of itself with Hunter K and some of the drama with Delta and these very funny experiences that we've seen in terms of reactions to uh, different earnings calls from share prices, right? When United decided to invest in its domestic network and build up the mid-continent hubs and the drama that ensued from there. And I agree that I think that, you know, we've been through this shock that has seen having bailouts you don't take place across the industry, having airlines continue to consolidate a little bit more, having the people that took voluntary leave from these airlines or pilots or uh, crews that were furloughed. And then the supply chain issues when we went from, as we talked about last week, going from abundance to scarcity. And now how do we get back to that middle ground? So with the earnings from Delta, I think it's also interesting that as we talk about the United versus Delta versus American Airlines long haul networks, which we've touched upon on episode one of season two, uh, and we'll talk about more in this episode. It's very interesting to me if we look at sort of the distinction between <clears throat> previous earnings calls, um, and not that I've listened to the earnings calls, but a real breakdown in terms of what results by regions uh, were we're seeing, you know, where the strongest hubs were, where the transatlantic joint ventures came through, where the transpacific joint ventures came through, uh, at uh, Latin as well. Um, there's a little bit less of a discussion around that, I feel like, um, at least in the case of Delta. Do you agree or disagree? Yeah, I think in at least in their main presentation, right, where the execs give the prepared remarks, they're not doing as much to break out the region by region results. The thing I thought was kind of interesting is if you dig into the Q&A from the earnings call, which is really where the juicy stuff tends to to sit, I think it was interesting, the conversation that was had between you know, the Delta execs and, and Michael Lindenberg. And, and the reason I'm, I'm calling that one out is they, they talk a little bit about this question of what is going to happen in Q3 and especially in Q4 and Q1 of next year. And I think that's a really interesting question about Delta's results. Not that I think they will be bad, right? Delta's underlying fundamentals are just so strong that I don't think they could produce a bad quarter without some sort of external catalyst like a recession or a... Um, or some sort of world-ending pandemic, the sequel, right? But when you think yeah. about where Delta has really grown capacity 
and what its fleet structure is like, I think there's an interesting open question as to how much counter-seasonal flying can they add to counteract or to offset the fact that transatlantic tends to take a dive in, across Q4 and Q1, right? If you think about Delta's fleet, they've got 767s that aren't Trans-Pacific capable. They've got A330 NEOs that aren't really Trans-Pacific capable, though they can reach some East Asian spots from Seattle and LA. If you think about what United is doing, and, and United just announced some new routes, Trans-Pacific routes that we'll dig into in our next segment, United is adding a bunch of capacity to Australia and to New Zealand, but all the carriers are doing that. But United's also reinvesting into Asia almost as a counter-seasonal tactic. And the thing that I think is really interesting is United can do that in part because the core of its wide-body fleet is those 787s, which are capable of both being efficient on those shorter transatlantic sectors, but also flying the longer routes over to and from Asia. And Delta doesn't quite have that flexibility. So I think that's really interesting to to think about what will happen to Delta's long-haul profitability, right, when you look at Q4, Q1 of next year? Because that, that that's the really interesting question to me. And they got into that a little bit. They talked about the idea that Southern Europe maybe has a longer season than Northern Europe when it comes to transatlantic demand. But, you know, I think Portugal in January still isn't a great market. Most definitely. It's Interesting, we've seen these movements with Air France, for example, coming into Raleigh-Durham, right? Will that allow for better utilization of a 767 that would be used between Raleigh-Durham and Paris during those low seasons somewhere else into the network? Uh, is Delta regretting not having the 787 order that they canceled from Northwest Airlines? Uh, but also, are they not as uh, are, are they not as successful as they once were with a lot of the Detroit Asia traffic that's not been returned and having to kind of rely on Seattle, which compares uh, very poorly against San Francisco as a trans-Pacific hub. Uh, and so then also you ask, well, what is going on with LATAM in the South, right? Can that also mean deployment of some assets to Latin America during the summer season in Australia, as you mentioned, uh, when it's in the Southern Hemisphere? And they've had, a, uh, you know, a New York to Buenos Aires market, a New York to Rio Janeiro market added uh, in conjunction with LATAM. But I agree with you. What, what does this look like in, in, in ahead times? And it could be that, you know, kind of between uh, American and United, Delta is kind of the one in the middle where it has a long haul network that is more like United than it is like American. And it also has a domestic network that is a lot more like American than it is like United in terms of where things are spread out closely. Um, But if you really look at the airline that kind of veers international, that's United. And if you look at the airline that veers domestic, that's American. Uh, And Delta kind of is right in the center. Not to mention how Delta has different uh, partnerships in each region between Latin America, Asia Pacific, and Europe. And it's now not really got one in Oceania because Virgin Australia um, made its decision to partner with United. And last thing I'll say on this note, it also, uh, with another topic that we'll talk about, Amsterdam Schiphol with all the limitations, what does that mean for Delta's transatlantic hub in Amsterdam? Are we going to see shifting more to Paris with Virgin 
uh, Atlantic joining Sky Team? Does that mean there's going to be a boost in Heathrow? Um, it, it'll be fascinating to see where that goes. Yeah, um, lots of really good points there. I think the first thing that I want to react to a little bit is the idea of Latin America. I think the tricky thing for Delta is if you look at United and you look at American, they have really strong Latin American hubs. American, of course, has Miami, which has a ton of demand. It has DFW, which is the an awesome connecting complex and has you know some decent OND demand of its own right. Delta has the DFW analog when it comes to connectivity, Atlanta. But I don't know how much more you can flow through Atlanta when there's only 10 or 20 local passengers on a 767. United doesn't necessarily have as much of a volume OND hub, but Houston has a lot of really premium OND demand to South America because of the oil ties. And then Dulles and Newark have a lot of connectivity and a lot of OND demand as well. So I think part of the challenge for Delta is that their positioning isn't great to be able to throw a ton of capacity into Latin America. Australia is kind of a bloodbath already, and both United and American are stronger to Australia as well. United because SFO is an actual sort of fortress hub with some connectivity, American because they have the Qantas partnership and the joint business. So that's the thing is like, I don't know where Delta puts these planes, especially the seven sixes that can't really fly to Pacific destinations. The other thing that I thought was really interesting is the question of, could you run more flights through Heathrow and what happens with Skip Pole and and Charles de Gaulle? I think we'll, we'll get into that a lot more in our bonus segment for today's episode. We're going to, we're going to actually dig into what's happening over at Skip Pole, which is hilarious because you normally think of the Dutch as this like super reliable um, super buttoned up, forward-thinking, innovative society, and here we are. But we'll save that for the bonus episode. I actually wanted to change gears a little bit and get your take on another thing that was mentioned during the earnings call, this time actually in the prepared remarks, ironically enough, which was that the revenue from the American Express co-brand partnership, right, where Delta has Amex Car cards that are branded with Delta. There's also a big partnership with the Amex Platinum card, of course. And I'm curious if you are following the news around potential legislation that would cap merchant interchange fees. And through a complicated set of factors, that could kill credit card rewards, which in turn is like a substantial proportion of Delta, American, and United's profits. So I'm curious yeah. if you had any reaction to that and if you noticed that. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It's so true. I mean, and, and for the major banks, not just Amex, but also for City, for Capital One, for Chase. Uh, you know, I don't think that like Discover is that oriented with airlines. But I mean, you know, Costco, for example, with, you know, its move from Amex over to Visa, I believe, like, you know, or MetaMed MasterCard. Those are huge, huge components of the retail ecosystem when it comes to financial levers and ledgers, for that matter. And how inventory and seat supplies and frequent flyer miles as, uh, you know, a loyalty program and something that is on the books, how that matters, right? And if there were going to be legislations on that, that would impact a ton of jobs. It would impact a ton of spending habits. And a lot of these 
people that talk about the depressed business class or business travel environment. Well, eh, I mean, there's still plenty of business travel that's taking place. That is also definitely a huge driver in a lot of the credit card loyalties and even the premium leisure or the people that don't travel for work, but do have a lot of expenditure on these credit cards. They do use these credit cards for those bonus spending categories, and they do use those points to redeem on business class travel at various times. Yeah, we are all consumers in that ecosystem. So that would be a very, I think, that would be a very impactful piece of legislation if it were to go through. And I certainly believe that the airlines would would be shaking, um, especially the major big four ones, but really all of them that, um, you know, even Spirit (laughs) has a co-branded credit card. Um, they're, They're very important parts of the airline ecosystem and loyalty um and it you know if airline loyalty didn't mean anything then no airline would have emulated american airlines which literally started that practice along with the concept of revenue management right after deregulation because airlines had to figure out a way to make money right yeah well i mean i think there's a certain way of looking at airlines and i think it's unfair to some extent, but there's a way of looking at airlines where if you think about just how high margin those points sales are and the level of pricing power that airlines have with the ability to devalue miles and devalue points, there's a way of looking at the U.S. carriers and analyzing the idea that they're essentially profitable frequent flyer programs stapled on top of break-even airlines, right? Like break-even airlines. Oh, yeah. I mean, that was even something pre-pandemic that people would say that, like, you know, a certain major airline just happens to be a credit card company that flies planes. Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> but jokes on that aside, I, I, I'm I'm very curious to know um, how that might go. And while we're on that topic, speaking of, you know, the major three, United did just come out with its earnings today. So maybe that could be a good way to transition from uh, Delta to United along with the exciting new United route announcement. Yeah, that sounds good. Um, let me just mention very quickly uh, what's what what United is doing uh, with this trans-Pacific expansion. It will be launching a new daily non-stop service from San Francisco to Manila and LA, and LA to Hong Kong in October of this year. It will also be adding a second daily flight between San Francisco and Taipei, and resuming non-stop service from LA to Tokyo Arita. How how is this related to the earnings, or what what can you tell us about? I think they came out today, right? Yeah, and we can uh, recite the earnings. So basically, the reporting from United, uh, I believe, is showing adjusted pre tax income of two point two billion, um, with a fifteen point three percent pre tax margin, um, compared to Delta's, which was at fifteen point two percent. The other details is that. The overall net income was $1.1 billion, or $3.24 a share, whereas a year ago, it had $329 million of net income at $1 a share. Uh, revenue was up roughly $2 billion from last year to total $14.18 billion. And in addition to that, the uh, earnings per share uh, reportedly for third quarter is expected to be between 3.85 to 4.35. So 
Again, that is uh, compared to 3.24 per, uh, per share. That was from this quarter, um, as well as sales growth of 10% to 13%. Uh, so I think that in that you know vein, just kind of like Delta, United has uh, become very uh, much more disciplined on its management chain uh, compared to 10 years ago. We're really doing some great work under Scott Kirby and the other executives that are there. Um, it, I think, has done a fantastic job, um, you know, some of its operational woes notwithstanding, uh, you know, kind of in terms of trying to actually fire on all cylinders rather than just like not be good at, you know, many different things. Um, that includes the investments in its uh, technology in terms of trying to make it a lot more customer friendly and give customers automation and autonomy over how to interact with their journeys. I think that the network and commercial planning teams have done a fantastic job of obviously optimizing the route network, but in addition to that, investing in the product, uh, really going all out in the technology space, the digital space, uh, and as well as the hard product. I do believe the catering leaves a lot to be desired. Uh, I've flown on Polaris many times now and the catering has not been very good. So I hope that that gets better. Um, but people do love the Polaris lounges. <clears throat> and I think that also just kind of culturally, uh, United has become a lot more of a, you know, an airline where people aren't scared to take risks and people are, you know, working together much better and operating much better. I'm hopeful that, you know, they'll be able to move past some of the labor issues that they're encountering right now. Um, but overall, it's it's really good to see that United has come so far, even in just five years uh, and definitely in 10 years. Uh, I think a lot of people can say that they're a lot more satisfied with the United under this regime than some of the previous ones. What about you, Vinay? This is probably the greatest time I've ever to ask you this after being stranded in Houston for 24 hours. So you can spill the real tea. Our latest issue is now available at airwaysmag.com slash shop, where you'll be able to get an Airways digital subscription, find Airways merchandise, and pre-order the 2024 Airways calendar. That's airwaysmag.com slash shop. I think I agree with most of what you said. I agree with the idea that Polaris catering is not the best I like the Polaris Lounge. I've actually never gotten the chance to experience the catering, like the the, the specifically the a la carte dining, which I, I hear is fabulous. Me I'm, hoping to, I'm hoping to experience it next week. I have a trip booked over to London. The thing that is really interesting to me about United's results is in some ways they're a lot closer to Delta than they were pre-pandemic. Delta is still more profitable, right? And obviously the word adjusted means different things to pretty much any company that you ask. But if you look at the adjusted profits for United, right, the adjusted pre-tax income of $2.2 billion, it's not that far off from where Delta was at $2.5 billion, right? If you look at revenue, they were about $400 million off, right? $14.2 billion versus $14.6 billion. Pre-pandemic, it was about a billion dollars a quarter was the gap. So the, the proof is in the pudding. United has caught up to Delta. They're still not at the same level of Delta. I'm actually just flew Delta from Denver to Atlanta this weekend. And 
the Delta product and consistency is still definitely a cut above what you get in flight with United a lot of the time. But they're a lot closer to Delta than I think was what the pre-pandemic trend looked like. And to your point, that is credit to Scott Kirby and the United management team and the United ops team and product team and network planning team. They're, let's call it, stranding of me in Houston this past evening aside. (laughs) Yeah, for sure. And when you mentioned that the Polaris experience has not permitted you to eat, I I feel for you because the Polaris flights that I had taken either departed from a non-Polaris lounge city or the lounge was closed. And I don't, I don't want to also say that United's catering and economy has become worse, but it definitely has. And so, like, you know, don't don't forget about those people in the back. I was, you know, kind of offended when I flew from Chicago to Delhi this past year and economy and the dessert was an M&M's, like, fun size thing. Like, come on. Back in the day, Continental would give you, like, a real Indian dessert. They'd give you, like, freaking kulfi and gaju burfi in the back. This, this time around, not so much. I mean, oh, yeah. I used to tell people that if they're flying economy from Newark, they should order the Hindu vegetarian meal because it will be much more flavorful and tasty than anything you get in yeah. the basic economy. That's completely out the window. It's catered from New Jersey. And, and this time around, like, no, I, I it wasn't. I, I was so disappointed. Ugh. Yeah, I mean, I've had basically just a comedy of errors when it comes to eating a la carte at the Polaris Lounge. Either I've had too tight of a connection, so I just had to go and use the buffet um, once, even though I was allowed into the Polaris Lounge at Dulles because of the rules. I had a connection in Newark, so they wouldn't let me into the the, the gate. The gate or sort of the front desk lady wouldn't let me into the lounge. Um, I booked a United... Lufthansa, a United Lufthansa, like joint business ticket, right? I paid United the money, but because I flew a Lufthansa medal over on my way back from India in June, I couldn't use the Polaris Lounge at Dulles. Then, um, incidentally, it seems like Dulles is a common theme in a lot of these stories. I've done a lot of Boston to Heathrow because that's where I lived for eight years. Yeah, I just, I have, I've, I've flown Polaris probably 30 times in the last five or six years and or in the last seven or eight years. And I've never once managed to actually sit down and eat an a la carte meal at, uh, at a Polaris lounge. So hope, hopefully next Tuesday is the, char- is, is the, the one that breaks the streak, but we'll see. Yeah. I've flown Polaris now on the triple seven, 300 ER triple seven, 200, the seven, eight, seven dash nine, and the 767-300. I have not done it on the Dash 10, 787-10, nor on the 767-400, which I think is a good segue into our next topic really relevant to this about United's Trans-Pacific Expansion because me just naming those fleet types alone gives you so much insight into the variability in United Airlines fleets. And how that has been able to really augment the international network, especially in spite of the fact that COVID took place or that the Pacific was most adversely impacted by the uh, pandemic. But uh, Helwig, why don't you uh, go ahead and provide us the insights or the main details of the new United Trans-Pacific routes that were uh, announced on July 18th? 
Yeah. Uh, I think so far from San Francisco, uh, this is for October, uh, United's going to fly to Man- Manila and from Los Angeles to Hong Kong. It also will be adding flights to Taipei in Tokyo. And earlier this month, United announced a second daily flight between New York and, and, and Delhi, uh, which begins in October as well. The news was paired with cancellation of a planned San Francisco uh, Bangalore flight that never took off due to issues with the Russian overflight. Um, that's it. Yeah, I think that um, one thing that is interesting to me is that United has been present in a lot of these long-haul markets for decades, on and off. Uh, routes like Los Angeles to Hong Kong or from Chicago to Delhi, that was once upon a time announced and never flown. Trivia fact, that was announced in uh, early 2001. It would have been operated on a 747-400. And then because of 9-11, it was canned. And even at that time, United had been flying a nonstop New York to JFK flight on a 747-400 that got canned even before 9-11. So it just kind of gives you a lot of insight into long-haul flights, ultra-long-haul flights, and the risk involved. And how that level of risk is always going to be a factor, even with long-haul aircraft, just because you're flying over very long distances, fuel costs are high, labor costs are high, Cargo and passengers and weight and balance is important. Weather conditions, navigations, polar conditions, war, all of those things come into play. So if you ever look at the list of the world's longest flights, it's one of those lists that always keeps evolving. Uh, Aside from the Middle East and Saudi Arabian carriers that seem to kind of consistently have their place, uh, you know, even, you know, airlines from end of line countries like Qantas, Uh, And Air New Zealand, among others, you know, they kind of move around. So with United, uh, just going back to the topic that we were talking about earlier in which United seems to be one of the few airlines that actually does ultra long haul flying, uh, looking at the variability of the aircraft that it has in its fleet, it is really able to have versatility in terms of expansion. And I remember we're saying I was talking about how in the last episode American Airlines got the 777-300s several years before United and was never able to use it to open up long-haul markets, even though it has hubs in places like New York and LA and Dallas-Fort Worth, where, you know, that was quite feasible for it. Uh, Whereas United is taking the 777-300ERs and has been able to use it in a couple dozen different cities uh, whether it's down in Australia, it's in China, it's in Southeast Asia, it's in India, it's Israel, hell, even in parts of Europe, for that matter, to Sao Paulo. Uh, and so for those reasons, I think that it is the perfect aircraft for Manila. I would have originally put my bet on the 787-9 for Manila, but I think that the 787-9 <clears throat> be uh, better utilized for the Hong Kong uh, LAX one. Uh, that aircraft is definitely based there. Uh, LAX has a lot of 787-9s that are used to fly to uh, previously to Asia, but now will be used to Australia. Uh, they'll be used for London and the second London route. Uh, and so they can just rotate a really nice base of 787-9s through LAX and then have the 777-300 to do some of these trunk routes out of SFO. 
I actually think that the 7879 was probably not the right aircraft for SFO Manila, because if you think about who's going to fill up that route, it's going to be a lot of VFR, visiting family and relatives passengers. And so that's going to fill a lot of economy class seats. That's going to fill a lot of economy plus seats. It will fill some premium economy seats. Not going to fill a lot of business class seats. I think the interesting trade-off with the 777 there is that you also probably have a lot of cargo shuttling between San Francisco and Manila. And so that combination, I think, meant that the 777 was actually probably the right aircraft for that routing just because the seat mile costs are going to be lower and you're just banking on, can we get enough people in the back of the bus to sort of break even on the operating cost of the flight and then we'll make our money on the cargo that's going to sit underneath the belly. I would hope for some really nice mileage plus redemptions and or plus point redemptions on that routing, uh, speaking as a United traveler. I, I think the thing that's really interesting with LAX to Hong Kong is... Part of what's happening there is that their very long-standing and, and pretty profitable route from Newark to Hong Kong, at least pre- profitable pre-pandemic, that's not operable because of the Russian overflight issues. And so when they feel like they have enough demand and they've got, you know, whatever it is, 10, 11, 12 wide bodies flying between LAX and Newark every day, you're going to... I think that's that's also playing a role here is that they can't fly from Newark to Hong Kong, which is probably the route that they actually want to operate. And so they're running LAX instead. They see it a chance to build back in LAX to some extent. When it comes to American and their triple sevens, well, hey, man, how, how else are they going to throw 15 daily triple seven, 300 ER flights into into London Heathrow? They can't afford to afford to move off of that. What are you talking about? <clears throat> yeah, no, in it's. Hong Kong is an interesting one to me because Hong Kong was a market where you're right. It previously was a very lucrative market from New York, hence why Cathay Pacific was flying four, five, if you included New York daily flights from New York to Hong Kong. And yeah, United was operating a triple seven three hundred from New York. They had flights from Chicago. They added a second one from SFO all pre-pandemic. Even at American using the triple seven three hundred from Dallas Fort Worth, which gave me a lot of pride as Dallas's you know hometown airport, you know my 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 boy DFW. But no, in today's times, that has all changed. Cathay Pacific has not even resumed Chicago uh, service, whereas at one point it was a ten x a week flight. Uh, and United dropped Chicago Hong Kong before the pandemic. And I think that the protests in Hong Kong, the political situation there, and a lot of the shifting of business from Hong Kong to Singapore may have had something to do with that. Um, Cathay Pacific had a ton of flights to the U.S. and had markets like Seattle and Washington Dulles, uh, among others, in uh, pre-pandemic times, but those have not been resumed. Uh, and so for those reasons, I think that the you're correct. New York to Hong Kong market is not feasible for Chicago, for United Airlines right now. Um, but there is substantial demand from LAX, uh, and LA has uh, pre- had previously American Airlines flying from LAX to Hong Kong. They're no longer in that market, and I'm sure that the uh, you know plan the you know kind of like previously with their LAX to Singapore flight that they tried once upon a time, a lot of traffic was originating in LA and flying over San Francisco. Right now, that might be better to kind of do it on a nonstop basis. Uh, flipping back to your Manila uh, 
component. I definitely agree about the VFR, visiting friends and relatives piece. And yeah, there's a word I learned today in Tagalog. I think it's called balik something, balik box. It's essentially a, a concept of uh, Filipino, Filipino ex-travelers uh, bringing a lot of items uh, home to their, like they travel cargo heavy because, you know, there's a lot of gift giving in that culture. Um, and so bringing, you know, items from, from the West uh, over and then I'm sure bringing some stuff back from the Philippines to the U.S. Uh, is a big part of the journey. Uh, and so definitely we'll be filling up a lot of the uh, <laughs> the space in the back. This is quite contrary to uh, Japan Airlines' efforts to reduce carbon emissions by having people rent Japanese clothes on their flights. <laughs> but um, yeah, super cool. I mean, people have been talking about uh, SFO Manila flight for a long time. And it's neat to see that SF has gotten this love from Southeast Asia. They got, uh, you know, a flight on Vietnam Airlines also. And, you know, other East Asian airlines are kind of making their way into the West Coast between Air Premia and I think Bamboo also wants to fly. Um, but Bamboo is kind of a hot mess from what I've heard. Uh, so uh, let's talk about, uh, well, I mean, Vinay, I don't know if you have anything else you'd like to add to that, but I, I want to talk about the Delhi ones as well. Yeah, I mean, I think maybe the only thing I would add is I don't think we are done seeing United make SFO to Asia ads, right? They've Again, they've got to put all those wide bodies that are flying to Ponta Delgada. I guess that's technically a 757, but, you know, to, to Nice and to Naples. And, you know, they've got all these wide, this wide body capacity across the Atlantic in the summer, and it's going to be very profitable in the summer. They've got to find somewhere to park those wide bodies in the winter. And I think premium in a world of premium leisure, the... Southeast Asian flights aren't necessarily the worst place to do that, right? Mm -hmm. You've got Manila. Obviously, Bangkok is a longer segment, but they've found some success with Singapore to SFO. So you could see Singapore as well. You could see potentially Saigon or Hanoi. So I think there's some really interesting future developments coming just because United has a lot of 787s and they've got to fly them somewhere. I also believe, look, there is... An existing route on PAL flying from SFO to Manila. You probably have some wealthy Filipinx people in the Bay Area that are loyal to United. And you might even have, you know, the maturation of people who are kind of our generation that, you know, they've lived in the Bay Area or in California for several years. You know, now they are working in tech or they're working in finance or something like that. Um, and they will be willing to pay a premium on United to fly in Polaris uh, to Manila. And there's also, I'm sure... Well, hang on. Let, let me just clarify. Willing to pay a premium and eat some really bad chicken adobo in United Polaris. Let's be honest here. <laughs> or balod. What if they serve balod, which is... Uh, for those who don't know, that could be our trivia question uh, for, for the week. What is balod? Yeah. Um, oh, one thing. Uh, Polaris... How old is it? Seven years? Five years? Why? Wow, it came out in 2016. Oh, it's more. And and the triple seven three hundred ER was the one that the, debuted the Polaris product. Um, <clears throat> but in in that case, yeah, I, I think that you might have uh, you know, some people that have been wanting this. Also, a lot of companies, uh, multinational firms, do business in Manila, uh, and so now you know this is a way for them to get to the Philippines without having to go through some place in North Asia or the Middle East for that matter. Yeah. And it helps that Philippine airlines doesn't necessarily have as much brand recognition or 
reputation with Western business travelers. Obviously, it, it does a great job serving the Filipino community, but when it comes to Western businesses, they're going to obviously prefer a U.S. carrier. Um, and to your point, there's a lot of back office outsourcing to Manila the same way there was to India and has been to India for close to two decades now. I have a couple of follow-up questions, which I don't know if either of you know the answers to. My first one is, wasn't there drama with Manila and United Airlines and the slots? Uh, that's one question I have. And number two is a little bit more long-term. Hasn't SFO been having trouble with just gates and aircrafts and movements? It's not slot restricted, but for United to grow all of these routes out of SFO, I mean, you know, there's also obviously the, you know, weather conditions there. I mean, kind of, we talked about new work and it's kind of meltdown from last episode. Um, how will United kind of avoid or be able to step around or navigate through some of those capacity additions at SFO to these markets? Or is it just that they're kind of backfilling capacity that is no longer being flown to places like Chengdu and uh, Hong Kong twice a day and Seoul and stuff because of... So on the slots, at least, I do believe that there was a lot of sort of behind-the-scenes drama. There was some a bit of a cold war going on between United and PAL and the Filipino government because United couldn't really secure the slots that it wanted at Manila. I think, in, if I'm not mistaken, this even dates back to the pre-pandemic era. So there's definitely some of that going on. Um, there has been some coverage of now that United finally got the slots that it wanted, it dropped some objections it had to uh, Filipino airlines. I believe they're launching service from Manila to Seattle, if I'm not mistaken. And that had a United Airlines objection that has been mysteriously withdrawn, you know, mysteriously in air quotes. So I think, I I think there's definitely seeing that in drama. I don't think PAL is flying that route anymore. Yeah, if, if it wasn't Seattle, it was it was one of their U.S. routes. There was a United Airlines objection to something. On your second question um, around the viability of these kinds of ops at SFO, I think the advantage that SFO has, unlike, a, say, a Newark, is twofold. First, it doesn't have the ATC constraints that Newark has. And then second, it doesn't have the same kind of evening rush, right? If you look at Newark, a lot of the long-haul flights leave in a, in the, in a band between like 5 p.m. and, and 9, 9.30 p.m. And so the ATC piece is just hellacious in New York City compared to the Bay Area. But if you look at United's long-haul ops from SFO, they're a little bit more spread out, right? A lot of the Europe stuff is early afternoon, early to middle afternoon, and the Asia stuff is both morning and late evening. So I don't think that they have as risky of a schedule in some ways. So I don't think I would anticipate the same kind of operational issues. It's just also not as ambitious of an operation. And they have pulled back a lot of frequency on sort of domestic and trunk routes. So, yeah, I mean, my, my, my take is that I don't think that there's the same level of operational complexity and challenges for United at SFO. It's not a matter yeah. of it's not a matter of sunk cost. I mean they've been wanting to go to Manila for like to get for a long while. Right. United is Yeah. They have. Um and I guess yeah the you know departures 
out of an SFO, you know, past uh, 11 p.m., it's going to be really exciting. You know, you got Singapore, got Sydney, you've got all of these um, other airlines that fly, you know, to East Asian destinations, Melbourne, the list keeps going. And these are year-round flights, right? Daily flights. Yep. Yep. These are flights that uh, require, I believe, a, a daily service and a year-round service, um, which is interesting because comparatively Air Canada is different. If you notice with the Air Canada Vancouver to Bangkok flight, that was an experimental one um, only through the high season uh, from uh, the northern winter period. Uh, so whether, you know, SFO to Manila, you know, might pave the way for SFO to Bangkok will be an interesting thing to see. The 777-300ER leaves just for midnight and it arrives in Manila at 6.50 a.m. two days later. I wonder which terminal they're going to use in Naia Airport. Uh, the w- terminal one is is the one where nightmares are made of. I've I've had a flight United in Delwith United on a canceled flight to Guam in that airport, and I still have nightmares about it. Um. Okay. I don't know anything else you got. You guys want to add to to the United topic? I think the last thing that we could share is just you know the second daily Delhi flight. Um. Really, just kind of a Womp womp situation. You know, I've flown Chicago Delhi. I've flown SFO Delhi on United. Uh, no longer uh, around. Yeah, it's great that United's adding a second daily one out of New York, but um, poor Bombay and Bangalore, they've been left in the cold. But not much else United can do. Maybe they'll add another flight from Dulles. I think that a Dulles to Delhi flight could be cool, but that might not be feasible even with the Russia situation because of the extra time it takes to get to Dulles from Delhi. Dallas is a much smaller market than Chicago or San Francisco, right? It's probably like a quarter of the size to India writ large. But capital to capital. Yes, because we know that that is the foundation of every successful airline routing. (laughs) Well, the Russia where you was that going to end soon, so. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, let's go down south uh, to Brazil to talk about Azul, which plans to phase out its, its 2A350 after less than one year of operations. That's ac- according to local Brazilian media. The airline has updated its Capinas Viracopos airport slots and the last flight uh, of the 350, I think, looks to be scheduled for October 28th uh, from BCB to or- Orlando. Yeah, this surprised me. Um, I'm not really sure if it's because Azul just wants to stick with the Airbus A330 fleet and it works well for them, or if Azul has just been super all over the place with their A330 long-haul operations to begin with. Um, it seems like they have three different bases between Viracopos, Belo Horizonte, and Recife in Brazil. So I think that in general, I read a quote somewhere that said it was only profitable when it was flying like Viracopos, Sao Paulo, Viracopos to Paris Orly in that length and that duration, which obviously doesn't fit into the model if it flies to Florida. Um, but hey, you know, A350s are, you know, just a single pair to operate. They, you know, if it's 
not compatible with the rest of the fleet and it doesn't make economic sense, then yeah, sell it to Iberia. I mean, airlines have always, you know, kind of just taken on aircraft in difficult times and then said, this doesn't work. Uh, we can just get rid of them and still, you know, kind of deal within the frame of our existing delivery schedule. That's the guess, best guess I can make. I mean, Helling, before we even get into responding to that, I do want to take a moment to appreciate Rohan's dedication to correct pronunciation of Portuguese names, because that is beyond my capabilities. <laughs> Mine too. But setting that aside, I, I, I'm actually not that surprised. I, I always thought the A350 was an oddball in Azul's fleet to begin with, in part because as a low-cost carrier, they're not running a connecting hub with the same type of, of scale and efficiency that like a LATAM is, for example, down the road at Guarlos or, you know, Zit or at Lima or at Santiago for that matter. And I think the thing that, that was always interesting to me is as it was a lot of very premium airline, right? Like one of the advantages of the A5900 is you can fly a really nice premium configuration. You can fit in a lot of business class seats. That's why it's valuable to a carrier like Delta with its Delta One Suites. That's why it's valuable to a carrier like Lufthansa with its shouldn't qualify as business class 222 configuration, right? It's not really a plane that's designed for carriers like Azul. The A330-900s, the A330-200s, those are more of the sweet spots that we've seen for low-cost carriers operating wide bodies. I also think a fleet of two aircraft is is almost never going to be successful when, when you're talking, especially when you're talking about wide bodies, right? You you need a certain scale to be able to operate wide bodies economically, and two orphaned A350s was was never going to be a good fit for Azul. So I'm, fr I'm frankly not that surprised. The thing that I think is pretty interesting to think about is to what extent does Azul want to be in the long haul business at all? Right. I mean, obviously, it, when an airline is ambitious and Azul sort of made some of these initial plans to go long haul back at a time when Brazil's economy was in better shape and flights to buy MacBooks and avoid tariffs aside, I don't know that the long haul demand in and out of Brazil is the same. I think from a tourism perspective, Brazil feels like it's been superseded by even more Mexico, by some dispersion across South America and by other beach destinations. So I don't know that long haul period makes a ton of sense, you know, maybe with the exception of flying Brazilians to and from the Miami area, because you could fill 15 A380s probably at Azul's prices when doing that. And uh, maintenance and operational costs, is that uh, something they considered? I'm sure it was. I think the big thing is the A350 is a very economical aircraft on a per seat basis, but it is more expensive on a per trip basis, right? And the way that math works out for someone like Lufthansa is they'll charge you, you know, four grand or, or two grand for a business class seat for each of the 60 or whatever business class seats they have on their, their flight, which is, again, highway robbery given, given what Lufthansa tries to claim as business class these days. Set that aside. And then they'll charge, you know, um, an economy fare and a premium economy fare. Azul isn't getting those prices. And if you're not getting that premium cabin price point, 
the A350 isn't worth it. You, you'd rather fly an A330-900, especially because Brazil has some very aggressive seasonality, right? And now it's counter-seasonal for the U.S. carriers, right? In that its strong portion is that October to March period. Right. But they're not filling those planes in the summer, in the, in the, in the U.S. summer, right? No, no one is, is flying a premium cabin on Azul in July. Maybe not no one, but they're not filling a lot of those seats. So yeah, like wh- wh- why why operate this orphan subfleet of two jets that you only ended up with in part because of a complicated set of of transactions dating back to 2014? Like it, it never it never made that that much sense in the first place. I guess they decided it was cheaper to operate them and try them out than to just let the, the leases lapse. But again, I don't know how that contract was structured, so I couldn't tell you more than that. Yeah. Right. Right. Okay. The deal was canceled by Estel's interest in the Airbus. I'm reading an article by Adrian Notkowski from Airways. He says that, it, it, well, its interest in the A350 900s began in 2014, as you say. Uh, but it was a dry lease contract. Hmm. But it was canceled in 2017. That, that deal was canceled in 2017. But I think the pickup of these A350s dates back to that original deal because I think the lease contract was transferred over to Hong Kong Airlines, if I remember what I read in Adrian's story correctly. Yeah. This contract was transferred to Hong Kong Airlines. That then fell apart because of COVID. And so right. the planes were on the fritz again. And then Azul took a couple of them. The thing that's interesting to me is Azul is so successful with what they, their core operation is, right? That low-cost intra-Brazil offering, right? Like, th- they found so much success with that, right? They turned Viracopos into a viable airport for Sao Paulo, Sao Paulo, which I don't think anyone would have predicted before they did it, right? They arguably went into, I don't even... I'm not even going to try to repronounce the way that Rohan did, but Belo Horizonte and Recife, I'm going to get skewered by any Brazilian listeners we have, but that's fine, right? But these were airports that were arguably underserved by both Latam and by Gol, right? Who've really focused on that Brasilia, Sao Paulo, Rio de Janeiro, like that's where they had their main focus. They built a really big focus city in Porto Alegre um, and even in, uh, okay, I'm not even going to try to pronounce this, but a um, couple of other smaller airports around Brazil. And they've done such awesome work in building that core offering. And and I think it's really ironic to think about the history of who Azul is, the fact that they were founded by JetBlue founder David Neil- Neilman. And right. like JetBlue, they found a really, really awesome niche and grew really, really fast off the base of that awesome niche. In JetBlue's case, it was low-cost, great service. In Azul's case, it was low-cost, reliable, but not as rough as goal, right? I think it's probably the, the niche they were they were filling in. Sort of, ironically enough, premium leisure before premium leisure was fetch, right, is the way of thinking about it. And they they were so successful with that, and their eyes got too big for their mouth, right? Well, they, I would say the same thing about WestJet, also a creation of Neelaman. This is what happens when airlines mature. They chase market share. They have to go up market because their labor costs rise because their operating costs rise because the cost of customer loyalty rises in terms of retaining that they have to reinvest in the product they have to be able to 
try to appeal to a wider mass of travel components, then they start to segment. So I, that's that's exactly what you're seeing um, in this case. Barring the really ultra low cost carriers like Ryanair and Spirit that have kind of kept to that model and stayed that way, this is what happens with the in betweeners, the people that are you know the hybrid airlines, as I mentioned. I would I would argue the only airline that's kind of seen hybrid small and sort of stuck to that has been Alaska Airlines. Well, I think Alaska Airlines is arguably a full service carrier with just a, a more niche network. Sure. But the thing that is striking about Azul is I think to some extent they probably initially planned to follow more of that Southwest spirit Ryanair path. And their path has been as they go through that curve of our workforce is getting older, our um, you know costs are rising, our structural costs are rising. We've tapped out some of the early markets. Part of what they're able to rely on is they're in these massive markets that have lots of untapped potential, right? Where you have these legacy carriers that are so expensive that, you know, Spirit can launch flights between major airports like a DFW to an Atlanta and find a niche to fill an A319 or an A320. Same with Ryanair. Then on the other end of the spectrum, you have like the Indian low-cost carriers, right? Where the way they've solved for this is the economy is just booming and growing continuously so they can continue to grow and you grow your way into low unit costs. That that was the story of Southwest and why they were so profitable. Mm-hmm. Azul thought they were on that journey, right, in Brazil between 2000 and 2010, 2011. But the Brazilian economy has really leveled off in a way that it hadn't previously, right? The, the economic growth in Brazil has been very stagnant for almost a decade at this point. It's not Argentina, but it's not great. And... I think that actually put Azul in more of a bind, for sure. Mm-hmm. The other thing that I'm just curious about is, and, and this is less about Azul specifically and more about the A350. The thing that I think is kind of interesting is, for the most part, you haven't seen a lot of 787s change hands, right? 787s, pretty much universally they're operated by the carrier that bought them obviously if that carrier went bankrupt or whatever that's a different kind of story but with the a350 you've seen carriers like latam give up their a350s in favor of the 787 you've now seen azul give up on the a350 you've seen some of the chinese carriers say no to the a350 even though arguably in some ways there's a lot more political tension with continuing to operate the 787 i think it's really interesting to think about what it is about the a350 that has caused it to be a fabulous aircraft for a lot of airlines, right? Singapore Airlines operates like 80 of them or something and and loves them. And Lufthansa can't get enough of them. But then there's some carriers that can't make the A350 work. And I think that's really interesting about what it says about the A350 versus the 787. I'm curious if you agree with that take or you think I'm over-reading into just a couple of data points. Well, I mean, the A350 is meant to compare towards the 777, in my opinion, and more so than the 787. And I think the 787 is made to compare more towards the A330. So that's my take on it in terms of capacity or in terms of range capabilities. Uh, because other than ultra long haul flying, I think that is where the A350 maybe goes against the 787. But for routes like Azul and for what Azul's needs are, that is more capably served by sticking within an Airbus family aircraft type like the A330 where it has the 900 
uh, series as well as the Neo series, uh, building on top of their existing familiarity with the Airbus A330-200 series. Um, and that makes more sense for them. A350s, I think it's going to be crazy to think that in a year will be 10 years of that aircraft being in the fleet. But it really hasn't been represented uh, very well in Latin America. And even in North America, outside of Delta, United hasn't taken any, American hasn't taken any. And so those are comparative points for U.S. to Brazil uh, in the case of Azul. Even LATAM gave its A350s to Delta. So that means that the only place where the A350 makes sense would be for longer missions. But Azul doesn't have any desire to go to L.A. or to go to um, London or to uh, other markets in Europe at this time, to my understanding, um, because of the risk involved, right? Uh, and also there's just a lot of capacity that's been added into South America from the Middle East airlines and from a few African airlines that do Fifth Freedom uh, routings over their Middle Eastern or African hubs and discount pretty heavily. Yeah, no, I think it's a really interesting point. I will just note that there are a lot of A350 flights to Latin America. They're just operated by Iberia, who can't apparently get, get enough of them. That's, that's what I'm saying. I think it's really yeah. interesting. right? The A350 is sort of really loved by certain carriers. Like there are certain carriers that will, you know, they, they can will take every A350 they can get their hands on, right? Yeah. If you look at Iberia, this Air India just bought 40 of them, right? Uh, if you look at Iberia, they're flying the A350 to Bogota. They're flying it to um, Buenos Aires, to Lima, to London Heathrow, which is hilarious to me this winter, to LAX, and then to JFK, Mexico City, Quito, um, Santiago, like they're flying these A350s into South America. That was always intended for Iberia, right? Because they were a, yeah, yeah, of course, a A340 operator for a long time, um, and they took a while to get those replaced. Um, and so, yes, you're correct. Uh, that was that was always the intention. Whereas you're seeing the A350 spread amongst Air France and Lufthansa and British Airways. But those are in addition to the 787 and the 777, which Iberia does not have. Um, and then you also have, uh, you know, KLM that is a 787 operator only and a 777 uh, series and an Airbus A331 only. But there's no A350s going to KLM. Well, to be fair, if the Dutch government had its way, KLM would be a train operator. So I don't know if that's the best guide of anything, but which actually might be a great segue into our next topic. We'd like to thank everyone who participated in our recent survey. Your feedback is invaluable and helps us improve our content so we can bring you the best show possible. Lastly, if you haven't done so already, please subscribe to our podcast on airwaysmagazine.substack.com slash subscribe or your preferred platform, whichever that may be, to receive new episodes every two weeks. Well, I think people are going to have to subscribe to the Airways Mag Substack to get access to our, what I'm sure will be snarky and pithy conversation about what in the world is happening over at Amsterdam Schiphol Airport. Before we get into that, I think we do have to revisit a couple of things from last week's episode. 
in particular, I didn't get my door knocked on by the U.S. government, so that's a win. And we have a trivia question that I've got to reveal the answer for. Yeah, I'm ready to hear this. All right. Yes. We'll do the question again. And what were the uh, answers submitted by Helwing and I? Yeah. So the original question from last week was about the Boeing 747. And it was it was my submission. And we're going to go ahead and do a rotation here where we, you know, switch off episode to episode. But the trivia question that I posed to the two of you last week was there have been 19 civil variants of the Boeing 747 passenger, freighter, and combi. Which airline has taken new delivery of the highest number of unique 747 variants? And how many, how many was it? So the answer, I believe Hellwing gave Lufthansa. Rohan tried to steal that answer, then tried to give me every other airline in the world that has ever operated 747s as an answer. But I believe your original answer was British Airways. And that was a really, really good guess. But the actual answer to the question is Korean Air, which operated a bunch of, uh, of variants, 11 to be precise. Lufthansa had operated nine and British Airways had operated eight, I believe. So I think Helling takes the point there because he beat you by one. Um, but neither of you got the correct answer with your original guess. So I think you did mention Korean Air as your as as one of your you know string of Korean Air and Cathay and blah 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 like yeah. so I feel like feel like um you guys got pretty close you guys gave the gave I believe airlines numbers two and three if I'm not mistaken and just for um, our listeners since we know they're just as big airline dorks as we are Korean Air has operated the seven four seven two hundred B they've operated the seven four seven two hundred freighter they've operated the 747-300, the 747-300 combi, a couple of different variants of that. Uh, they operated, of course, a bunch of 747-400s. Um, and then they operated the 747-ERF, so the extended range, range freighter version, the freighter version, the combi version, the 747-8 freighter, and the 747-8 intercontinental, the passenger variant. So they were your number one answer to last week's question so neither of you got it wrong i don't know if anyone in the comments got it right but hopefully we'll we'll get some folks getting this week's trivia question right okay and on that i will give the trivia question so if you've been paying attention to this episode we've talked about a lot of long haul routes and i made a comment earlier about the risk involved and how long haul routes and ultra long haul routes have been around for decades and that list keeps changing Uh, But there was a particular route that I mentioned in this episode that was announced and never started and that eventually it was started. Uh, And the same year that it was announced and never started, uh, there was another airline that announced a route that was from a similar North American to other country pair. What was the airline and what was the route and what was the year? Can you also just remind us the one that you mentioned in this episode? Yeah. Yeah. I mentioned uh, the same year that New York to Hong Kong was flown by United. There was another route in that kind of, you know, whole historical year. And uh, that one was never flown by United. It was announced, but subject from 9-11. It did eventually fly again for a period of time, but it is no longer flying. And I made several hints to it all throughout this episode. Uh, So what was that pair? And... 
it was announced by a U.S. carrier. Uh, I will say it's in the North American region. Let's put it that way. And this is a route that has been flown previously, and I've actually been flown, and I have flown on it, but it has not flown in a while. So this is an on-again, off-again route pair. I just want to state for the record that I was six when this supposed news came out, so I feel like I should get a a bit of a pass here. <laughs> but, oh God, I there were so many announced and then killed routes uh, it wouldn't be any of the Northwest Airlines stuff because I don't think they ever. Is this Philly to Beijing? Good guess. Oh God! I just flashed back to the 2008 version of me. I was. I was. <laughs> that was the end of middle school. Oh God. Um. So Philly to Beijing. I, I'm not locking that in as I guess yet, but I'm just. I'm just. I just. I'm just mentioning that for for the audience here. Um, how any any insights here? No, I'm a bit older than you, and I have no clue. Um, I have no clue. I don't know. Well, okay, it can't, it can't be Philly to Beijing because that never actually operated. He also said North American, so that's making me think that it was Air Canada. Um, Toronto to where? I feel like they did end up launching a lot of Toronto stuff. Um. Vancouver, Bangkok just came back, so that wouldn't that wouldn't qualify. Um, when you said another routing like it, I instantly thought to Thai's very ill-fated Bangkok, Los Angeles nonstop. But I uh, look at that smirk. Uh, yeah, he's he's, uh, he's really he's really uh, got us. I thought yeah. my seven four seven question was tough, but fair. This is just. Like I've got to think through every U.S. Asia route that was announced, then operated. Uh, like, all right, um, God, okay, let's see here. Calgary, Toronto was operated, but that's all right. We're out of guesses. Guesses. <laughs> all right, I'm gonna I'm gonna lock in Toronto to. Okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna walk in Vancouver to Saigon. I don't think that ever operated, but we'll we'll, we'll throw that out as a guess. Wow, I like that. That's like All right. There we go. I don't know. I'm, I, I, I still have my head like I'm still thinking about the Latvia hooker index. I think that's what you're referring you to. Know, I actually beginning. truly believe that that is a very valid and sound way of determining economic uh, indexes because think about it. Uh, you know, a stripper spends a lot of time also with their clients and sometimes their clients like to inform them and teach them about things like stocks and the markets so that right. the stripper, you know or the stripper for all you know could be someone that was uh, ex wall street or uh may have their own sort of investment advice and strategies to provide their clients so i i feel like the ex wall street sex workers are probably smart enough to go to OnlyFans instead of stripping but huh. that's that's my only take on that um, the Latvian hooker index sounds interesting. Howing, are you, uh, do you have something to share with the group? <laughs> no, I mean, no, no, no. It's just that, you know, if they return, if they get better jobs, uh, then that's, that's, that's a Latvian uh, hooker index. There's a um, Wagner group joke in there somewhere. I won't make it, but it, but it's in there somewhere. It's in there somewhere. Yeah. Well, before we take a break, we do got to remind everyone that, hey, we're back. This is episode two so we've, we've done this twice now 
And in order for us to keep doing this, we are going to need you to go into Apple, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts, leave us a five-star review, make fun of one of us in your review if you'd like, but just make sure you leave us that five-star review. It is really, really important as we think about how we're going to grow this podcast again and how we're going to continue to invest. So um, leave us a review or I'm going to be very angry with you the next time I talk to you. Yeah, for sure. Uh, Those reviews really help us. That's a wrap for today's episode. Thanks for listening. As always, we'd like to thank our sponsors for supporting the show. If you're interested in sponsoring our podcast too, please visit airwaysmag.com slash podcast for more information. Lastly, be sure to subscribe to our podcast on airwaysmagazine.substat.com or on your preferred platform. If you're a Plus member, stick around for Skipple Airport and AEP. For everyone else, we'll catch you on the next episode of the Airways Podcast. Okay, we're back uh, from the break uh, for Plus Extension. And yeah, we just wanted to double click on two topics uh, regarding the Amsterdam Schiphol Airport. You know, what are airlines going to do? How are they going to scramble due to this, uh, you know, the, the reduced flight court order? They're going to reduce it, by, reduce it by 12%, but then I don't know what's going on. Like, no one knows what's going to yeah, happen. Well, so, so there's an original court decision that capped flights at Schiphol, but there has been some turmoil with the Dutch government. And so the future of that flight cap is...